Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. You can open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 18, as we continue in our study this year in the book of Matthew, and place our focus as a church on the topic of discipleship. And uh, Jesus, obviously being the model discipler, and Jesus, as we come to our passage this morning, is approaching some of his disciples and calling them into ministry. Uh, and I'm going to uh, borrow this morning a, a parable that has been written and used by many pastors in order to describe uh, the state of discipleship in the Western church, not saying our church, but in the Western church. And hopefully it will be a challenge to us as we launch into our passage this morning. But it's been written and, and used and told and reused by many pastors that it was on a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks were frequent that a crude little life-saving station was built. And the building was just a hut and there was only one boat, but the few devoted crewmen kept constant watch over the sea. And with no thought for themselves, they would day or night tirelessly search for anyone who might need help, and many lives were saved by their devoted efforts. But after a while, the station became famous, and some of those who were saved, as well as others in the surrounding area, wanted to become part of the work. They gave time and money for its support, and new boats were bought, and additional crews were trained, and the station grew. And some of the members became unhappy that the building was so crude. And they felt that a larger, nicer place would be more appropriate as the first refuge of those saved from the sea. So they replaced the emergency cots with hospital beds and put better furniture in the enlarged building. And soon the station became a popular gathering place for its members to discuss the work and to visit with each other. And they continued to remodel and decorate until the station more and more took on the look and character of a club. And few members were interested in going out on life-saving missions, and so they hired professional crews to do that work instead. And the life-saving motif still prevailed in the club emblems and stationery, and there was a liturgical lifeboat in the room where the club held its initiations. And one day, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in many boatloads of cold, wet, half-drowned people, but they were dirty and bruised and sick. And the beautiful new club was terribly messed up, and so the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside where the shipwreck victims could be cleaned up before coming inside. Now, at the next meeting, there was, split in the, there was a split in the club membership, and most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities altogether as being unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. So members insisted on keeping life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed out that, after all, they were still called the life-saving station. But those members were, devoted, were voted down and told that if they ever wanted to save lives, they could begin their own station down the coast somewhere. And as years went by, the new station gradually faced the same problems that the other one experienced, and it too became a club, and its life-saving became less of a priority. The few members who remained dedicated to life-saving began another station, and history continued to repeat itself, and if you visit that coast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along the shore. Shipwrecks are still frequent in those waters, but most of the people there drown. And that parable was written, I don't know by who, but in order to describe the state of the church in Western society. Now, I'm, I'm for one, I'm thankful that I'm able to come to a church 
and hear uh, Pastor Brandon paint a vision of reaching Chapel Hill and that uh, we are not in that state. It is great to be part of a church that is still active in trying to disciple one another and to reach the community. Uh, I would imagine that's why many, if not all of us, are here at this church is because we recognize that reality. Uh, but as we look at the state of things, when Jesus came and he began his ministry, uh, they were really in that kind of state where the religious leaders were more interested in promoting their own priorities, their own goals, their own ambitions. And so Jesus, when he comes, he has to recruit an entire new leadership that is totally unlike the ones that currently exist. And that brings us to Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 20, as Jesus goes out and begins to recruit his own life-saving crew. So let's start this morning in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 and down through 22. And it says, And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat, with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Our message this morning is very simple, although much needed in our culture today, and hopefully will be a huge encouragement to our church this morning. And the title of our message this morning is, Do You Have What It Takes?, and although that sounds kind of in your face, I was going through certain title options and uh, I was like, you know, this sounds a little bit in your face, but um, the idea of fishers of men doesn't really work well in English, right? Uh, because I was like, do you have what it takes to be a fishers of men? And I just had these ideas of like the internet and scams and catfishing. And I was like, no, that just seems like a weird thing. Um, then, do you have what it takes to be a fishers of men to rescue them from, you know, the, the, the tumultuous sea of sin? That's just way too long of a title. So we boiled it down to, do you have what it takes? And the idea this morning is, do we have what it takes to be part of Jesus' life-saving crew like Peter, James, and John, and Andrew? We're going to ask ourselves this morning, what does it take to be part of of the crew that Jesus began to put together with these men and has continued today as we get to the end of the book of the Matthew, all the way at the end, just as Jesus trained these men to be disciple makers, he hands off his ministry to them and the book of Acts uh, continues to tell the story of how they continued Jesus' ministry and they were to make disciples and those disciples were to make disciples and that trickles down all the way to today. And what does it take for us to embark on the noble cause of fishing for men in order to rescue them from the tumultuous seas of sin? And really, what we're going to take a look at this morning is that it takes two things. Things that sound very simple, things that are simple, but this is what it takes to be part of Jesus' life-saving crew. It's why Jesus chose these men, and it's why God is going to use this church. What does it take? Well, it takes two things. One, faith, and two, obedience. As I said this morning, our message is going to be simple, although much needed. It takes faith and obedience. Number one, 
going to take faith. And as we take a look at the lives of these men, we see that one of the reasons that Jesus chooses these men is because of their faith. It's not because of their position. It's not because of their education. These are blue-collar workers that by the time we get to the book of Acts, we learn about them that society's perception of them is that they're really uneducated men. When these men take on Jesus' ministry and begin to spread it throughout the entire world, just as Jesus instructed them to do, people's reaction to them is, wow, how can these guys speak so eloquently and how can they speak so informed about Scripture seeing that they're uneducated? These are not the elite of society. These are blue-collar workers who are rough, who are busy in their lives with hard labor. What is it about these men that Jesus calls them into ministry? We see in verse 18 that he first, walking by the sea, sees two brothers named Simon, called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. What is it about these men that Jesus sees potential in them and calls them into ministry? Well, first it's Obviously, their faith. I say obviously because I just, I just gave you the answer before this. Uh, it's their faith. We see that these men were already involved in looking for the Messiah. These men already believed that God would send a deliverer. They were on the lookout for him. We see this as we look into the book of John. And in John chapter 1, verses 35 to 42, speaking about the ministry of John the Baptist, it says, Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus as he walked by, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And then Jesus turned, and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say, when translated, teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and see. And they came and they saw where he was staying and remaining with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour. And one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he first found his brother, Simon Peter, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And now when Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah, and you shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. These guys were already looking for God to work. These guys were already seeking for the Messiah. And when John comes on the scene, speaking about preparing people's hearts for the coming of the kingdom of God, for the coming of the Messiah himself, these guys attach themselves to the ministry of John by faith looking for the Messiah. And then when Jesus eventually does arrive on the scene and, and John uh, the Baptist recognizes him as being the Messiah and says, behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When Andrew hears this, he immediately leaves John's ministry knowing that John's ministry was meant to prepare for the Messiah and Andrew leaves. And he goes and he finds his brother Peter and he brings him to Jesus and together they have faith in Christ. What is it about these men that qualifies them to follow and be disciples of Jesus? One key thing, they believed. We also see that Jesus goes and he recruits James and John, who were likely uh, very good friends. I mean, we know that they were business partners, so they were likely very good friends uh, with Andrew and Peter, as James and John were also fishermen. 
And so likely Andrew hears from John the Baptist and Andrew goes and gets Peter and then uh, Andrew and Peter goes and gets James and John and together they come and they believe in Christ. And we don't know much about the actual conversion testimony of James and John, but we do know that they, like uh, Andrew and like Peter, when they were called into ministry, already believed what Jesus was saying about himself. We know this because of their actions in verses 18 to 22. Jesus walking by the sea, seeing Andrew and Peter says, come and follow me. And because they already believed, what did they do? They immediately dropped their nets and they followed him. And James and John have the same reaction. Going from there, it says in verse 21, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Just like Andrew and just like Peter, these guys believed what Jesus said about himself. And when Jesus invites them into the ministry, they immediately leave whatever they're doing and they go and they follow him, putting all of their hope and their trust of what their future looks like in Jesus. Now, this does not mean that they were perfect men. We know this. Because as you follow through uh, the Gospels, and as we'll see through the book of Matthew, there are times when they say and do things that even Jesus says, wow, you guys are faithless. <laughs> How long is it going to be before you get it? And we're going to see Jesus say that many times. In the specific case of James and John, although we don't know specific things about their salvation testimony as much as we do about Andrew and Peter, we do know that their lives were totally transformed by the message of the gospel. We know this because of things that the Gospels revealed to us about them. We see in Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 56, that both James and John were very opinionated and they were very aggressive. It says in Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 56, Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face, and as they went and they entered into the village of the Samaritans to prepare for him, but they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and to consume them just as Elijah did? I mean, can you even imagine saying this to anybody? Jesus sends them to tell the, the Samaritans that Jesus is coming and that he's the Messiah, they reject Jesus because he's focused on Jerusalem. And we all know about the religious differences uh, between the Jews and the Samaritans. And because Jesus was focused on Jerusalem, the Samaritans at that time uh, were not really interested. And James and John's reaction was, Lord, should we pray that God destroys them? No wonder they had the nickname it's probably this event that gave them their nickname, the Sons of Thunder. Lord, shall we call the heavens to open for thunder and lightning to come down and consume them? As we continue to follow the story of their life, the gospel totally transforms them. Uh, we also see that these guys were power hungry and the gospel totally transforms their life. For example, Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 to 23 then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him, to Jesus, with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, grant that these two my sons of mine may sit, one in your right hand and the other on your left, in your kingdom. 
But Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and to be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? And they said to him, we are able. And so he said to them, you indeed shall drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right, right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those whom it is prepared by my father. So we know that these guys are not perfect. We know that Peter and Andrew are not perfect. We know that James and John are not perfect. Jesus doesn't come and call them because these are, are paradigms of, of Jewish religion that these guys are the guys to aspire to be. No, these are the guys that, that have faith in him. And really, Jesus is taking the roughest of the rough. I mean, guys, I mean, that thought has never even entered my mind right? For me to come into a city and to say, well, they're rejectors. Lord, just burn the place down, right? That thought has never really entered my mind, but it entered their mind. These are rough guys. And Jesus calls them not because of any special reason, but one. Unlike others, they believe what he says. And that's the first qualification. They had what it takes to be fishers of men, to be disciplers, to go and to bring people into the kingdom of God primarily because they believed him. And then secondly, we see that the other primary reason that they were qualified to be disciples of Jesus and to call people into the kingdom of God is not that they just had faith, but they obeyed. Not just that they believed, but they acted on that belief. And we do see this in their lives as they continue to uh, develop and be transformed by the ministry of Jesus. Uh, first, we see Andrew. And we see him in John chapter 6, verses 1 to 9. Actually, we, we already took a look at one example of this. It's interesting about Andrew. We really don't know much about him. Um, it seems that in the brother dynamic that Peter is the outgoing loud one. And the Andrew is the reserved backseat one. You know, you all know those sets of brothers, right? Um, in my relationship with my older brother, I'm the Andrew, right? My older brother, which ironically is named Brandon, uh, my older brother is way more loud than me, way more outgoing than me, way more in your face than me, just like this Brandon. <laughs> um, and I'm not that way, but Andrew, we don't, see much about him in the scriptures, but whenever Andrew is mentioned, it's interesting. Whenever Andrew is mentioned, he is bringing people to Jesus, and it starts with his brother Peter. Uh, Lowell mentioned uh, this morning about really only reaching one, but yet years later, here he is. Think about the ministry of Andrew, and if, he, if all he ever did was reach Peter, <laughs> think about his ministry. But Andrew being a follower of John the Baptist, when he is referred to Jesus by John the Baptist and he leaves and he believes that Jesus is the Messiah, the first thing that he does is he goes and he finds Peter and he brings him to Jesus. Whenever we see Andrew, he's bringing people to Jesus. We also see this in John chapter 6, verses 1 to 9. And after these things, Jesus went over to the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs which were performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews was near. And then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him for he himself knew what he would do. 
And Philip answered and said, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them should have a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon's, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? And here, uh, while the other disciples, Philip primarily, Jesus turns to Philip and says, hey, Philip, what are we going to do? Uh, Philip is the thoughtful, the analytical one, the one who wants to have all his ducks in a row. And when Jesus turns to Philip and says, hey, Philip, what are we going to do to feed everybody? Philip says, I don't know. <laughs> we don't have the money. So who knows? And Andrew's response is to just find somebody and bring him to Jesus. We also see this in John chapter 12, verses 20 to 22. It says, now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship, who came up to worship at the feast then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asking him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip came and he told Andrew, which is interesting. <laughs> Characteristically, even the other disciples seem to look to Andrew to be the guy to make introductions to Jesus. He's the guy. And when Philip, when people who know Philip come and they say, Hey, could you introduce us to Jesus? He says, Sure. Let's talk to Andrew. <laughs> And then Andrew, with Philip, brings them to Jesus. Andrew is the connector. He's the guy that if he ever does anything, it's he brings people to Jesus. He obeys. Jesus said, go out and bring men to me. What does Andrew do? The only thing we ever see about Andrew, the only mentions we ever have of him, is that he's bringing people to Jesus. He obeys. We see the life of Peter as well. As we look at the life of Peter, uh, some of the one of the defining moments of the life of Peter is his refusal to be identified with Jesus during Jesus' crucifixion. And if you were to see him during that time, you would definitely say, man, this guy is not obedient. Uh, this guy, when given the opportunity to say that he's associated with Christ, be before just other blue-collar workers, people that don't really have any governmental significance, even in front of them, he's saying, no, I do not know him, swears up and down that he does not know Jesus. But eventually, after Jesus completely, or after Jesus raises from the dead and Peter completely sees the full picture of what Jesus is going to do with him, in Acts chapter 4, verses 5 to 12, we see the complete opposite actions from Peter. It says, and it came to pass on the next day, and this is the day after that him and John had gone into the temple and healed a lame man. Not that they healed him, but Jesus healed him through them. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they sat them, Peter and John, in their midst, they asked him, by what power or by what name have you done this? Now you just consider this. Okay. Peter, will he obey in this moment? Peter, who days before, right, less than a year ago, like probably just a couple months ago, was outside watching Jesus' crucifixion from afar and was questioned by just other random people. Hey, didn't I see you with Jesus? He says, no way, I don't know him at all. Swears up and down that he doesn't know Jesus. Now, today, he is in front of the people that crucified Jesus. The very people that sentenced Jesus to death. Probably what Peter was trying to avoid. 
He sees what Jesus is going through. I'm trying to avoid being crucified myself, so I'm going to lie and say I don't know him. Now he's in front of the people who crucified Jesus. And what does he say? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that it's by the name of Jesus Christ. And imagine how that lands on Caiaphas, <laughs> who, delivered him, who delivered Jesus over to the Romans to be crucified. The one thing he wants to do is get rid of Jesus. And the one thing he can't do is get rid of Jesus. Because here Jesus is again in his face, acting through his disciples. How is it that you have done this? Well, we have done it by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And then he throws it back in their face, whom you crucified. I mean, this guy is obedient. <laughs> he obeys even though he knows it will likely cost him his life. Whom God raised by the dead and by him gave, this man stands before you whole. This is the stone which you, the builders, have rejected, which has become the chief cornerstone, cornerstone, nor is there any salvation in any other. For there is no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What is it that qualified Andrew? He obeyed. Jesus said, bring people to me. And that's exactly what Andrew did. What is it that qualified Peter? He obeyed. Jesus said, bring people to me, and that's exactly what he did. We also see James. Jesus says to James, bring people to me, and what does James do? Well, like some of the other disciples, we don't know a ton about James, but we do know this. It says in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, Now about the time that Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some of the church, then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. What do we know about John already? Well, we know that John was very outspoken, that he was not afraid to speak his mind, even to the point where he said to Jesus, hey, let's destroy an entire city. <laughs> this guy, if he believes something, he's all in on it. To the point where he obeys and is so outspoken about his faith that when Herod the king thinks to himself, hey, let's strike down this Christian movement. What does he think? The most effective way to strike down this Christian movement would probably be to get rid of that outspoken guy, James, who will not shut up about his faith. What do we know about James after the resurrection of Jesus? We know that he would not be quiet about Jesus to the point where when the political leaders think, how can we silence a movement? He's the first guy they go for. What qualifies James? Was he educated? Was he well-known? No. James obeyed. And lastly, John. John had a similar personality as James, although uh, he survived a lot longer. <laughs> but the other half of the Sons of Thunder underwent such a striking change in his life where he becomes known as the disciple of love. His life is so radically transformed by the power of the gospel that he writes in 1 John chapter 3, verse 18, My little children, let us not love in word or in deed or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. 
Let's just not say we love. Let's act like it. He took the teachings of Jesus from John chapter 13 when Jesus laid aside his garments and he took up uh, the attire of a servant and he washed the disciples' feet and Jesus went and he sat down and he said, now by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is the new commandment I'm giving you that you love one another. John took that and he made it so much a part of his life that he becomes the apostle of love. To the point where historian Jerome writes about John that even in old age, John goes about saying, my little children, you ought to love one another. And what is it that is the dying wish of John is that we, as a church, would love one another. What is it about John that qualified him to be a follower of Jesus, to be a disciple maker? It was that he took the words of Jesus, made it a part of his life, and he did them. He obeyed. Like I said, the message is short this morning. So I'll leave us with this question. Do we here at the chapel church have what it takes to fish men out of the perilous waters of sin and destruction? What does it take? Well, it takes two things. Do we have faith? And I hope we do, right? I hope that's what brings you here this morning. The fact that you have faith in who Jesus is and what he says about himself, but it's not enough to just have faith, just like John writes, that we would love not in word or in tongue, but in action, in deed and in truth. Do we have faith in word or in tongue, but also in action and in truth? Are we going to act on it? Do you have faith? I hope so. The next question is, will we obey? What is it about James and John, Peter, and Andrew that qualify them to follow Jesus? Well, it wasn't that they were well-educated or well-known or well-equipped. Actually, you could argue that the people who were probably the most well-educated, the most well-known, the most equipped, Jesus purposefully did not choose them. <laughs> Actually, it's probably one of the things that really frustrated uh, the religious leaders of the time, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, the priestly order. It's probably one of the things that, that really got to them is that when it became clear that Jesus was influential, when he came with such power and authority to the point where the Pharisees did say about him, wow, this guy teaches unlike anybody I've ever heard. He teaches unlike us. He teaches with authority. They recognized Jesus' authority. And what does Jesus do? He turns around and instead of asking them to help, he picks out fishermen. He picks out zealots, tax collectors. Actually, out of all the disciples that Jesus has chose, only one of them has a wealthy background. And it's Judas. And I would argue that it's Judas and his love for money that actually enticed him to betray Jesus because of his frustrations about how Jesus handled money. Was it that the disciples were educated or influential or, or powerful? No. Jesus chose them because those who were influential, those who were powerful, were complete failures. And that would have struck at their heart when Jesus goes out and he chooses 12. <laughs> One leader for each tribe of the people of Israel, 
to lead where the religious order could not. What is it that qualified them? Faith and obedience. And aren't you glad to be a part of a church this morning that does have a pastor that stands before you? Pastor Brandon, I'm not referring to myself. Pastor Brandon, who says, let's reach our community together. And the question for us is, will we rise to the command of Jesus to faith and to obedience? To this year, even though things look differently than they have in the past or even currently do, that that mission has not changed and that there is nothing that can stop God from being at work as long as we have faith and obedience.